Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to uh, the book of Galatians. Um, one quick correction, proviso, addendum. Um, small group leaders, I, I said just a second ago that, well, when we started worship, that uh, our huddle was after worship today. I meant after all of our worship today, um, not like after this service. It's the first one that we've done since going to two services, so I'm still a little... Rusty on that. All right. If you don't have a Bible with you, the text is in your bulletin in the order of worship. Or if you don't know a Bible, there's some on the back table. We'd love for you to grab one of those. That's our gift to you. But however you can have the text in front of you, please do so. Okay. Now, we are more than halfway through our series uh, through the book of Galatians, the New Testament book of Galatians that we've called Freedom. And what we've seen so far is that the gospel of Jesus Christ promises us freedom from both the penalty of our sin, like what we justly deserve because we've betrayed God, but also its power over us. You'll remember that what what we've said is that the gospel of Jesus does this by offering us, as a gift, the work of Jesus in our place. His death bearing the weight of our sin, but also his standing before God, his perfect standing before God, uh, taking his status on on ourselves. And so in Jesus, we find freedom. But the boast of the New Testament isn't that this just happens on some kind of formal level, like as if it's on paper, like it's a tax status or something. Like the, the boast of the New Testament is this actually happens to us. That the Holy Spirit actually comes into our life and begins to change us, to make us new, to restore us to the kind of people the Bible says we were made to be. Are we going to see that worked out perfectly in this life? No, of course not. But change actually does happen. We talked about that last week. What we're going to find today is that we are restored, ultimately, to a joyful and to being a self-forgetful people. So if you have your place in the book of Galatians, we're in chapter 4. If you'd stand, this is our habit here. We're going to be reading verses 12 through 20. This is God's word. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I have also become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know that it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What has become of your joy? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out so that you, may, you might make much of them. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I'm present with you. But little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of, anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. This is God's word given for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Father, over this time we ask your blessing as we have come into this place bringing our our burdens and our cares, bringing our our joys and our triumphs, bringing even our sorrows. We ask that you would meet us in the midst of them. There is no hope for us if you do not work in our lives. Holy Spirit, would you come, soften our hearts, open our ears, open our eyes. Jesus, would you be the one who preaches your own gospel to us? Let what you have done and who you are come out. And let the one who speaks fall away, Lord, because you alone hold the words of eternal life, words that bring life to us even right now. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So, uh, Jason kind of mentioned this earlier, but we have spent the last three weeks talking about adoption. 
That the Christian doctrine that boldly proclaims that when we place our faith in Jesus, that we are united to him by the power of the Holy Spirit, and we are actually made children of God, brought into God's very family. And adoption, like all other aspects of the work of Jesus, is not something we earn or deserve or work for. And that actually makes more sense to us when we talk about adoption, because children who are adopted did not somehow uh, work to get there. Like, the, it, it's something they had no power over. It just happened to them. And so, in the same way, the Christian doctrine of adoption is something that God gives to us as a gift when we believe what he says about us and trust in Jesus to make things right. Now, in light of that, a question that I will often ask my small group as we're kind of getting together is and, and talking about um, sermons week in, week out is, okay, now, in light of that truth, what would your life be like if you actually believed that? What would your life be like? How would you act differently if you actually believed and rested on the idea that we just talked about? So think about that. If you truly believe that you were fully accepted by God, despite your failures, not because of what you did, but because of Jesus, and that since you didn't earn that place, you couldn't lose it by the failures that will come. It will come. Not, not an option. They will happen. If you truly believed that when you were an enemy of his, that Jesus died in your place, was willing to give himself for you, how would that change how you'd live? This morning, Paul highlights for us how it should change us and how returning to believing that we need to earn God's favor, kind of returning to this notion that we have to somehow uh, work to get his pleasure, that it actually takes all of that away. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at this in three ways. As always, there's, there's an outline there if you need it. We're going to look at uh, for others, then we're going to look at for me, and then we're going to look at forgetful. Okay, For others, for me, and forgetful. Easy, all Fs. Good. Let's go. All right. So as we get into this, let's remember the situation of the people that Paul is writing to. The folks who lived in these cities that would have been in what is now southern Turkey were primarily, before Paul came, primarily from pagan backgrounds. And I don't mean that pejoratively. I mean literally. They were pagans. They, they, uh, they worshipped a pantheon of gods, probably Greek, Roman, um, some kind of conglomeration of whatever tribal deities that may have been in the area. Um, there were some that were from Jewish backgrounds. The majority of them were pagan. Okay, And so they came to believe Paul's message. That they were alienated from God. Now, when I say God, we have to understand, this is a God they had no knowledge of before he came. They, they didn't know him from a hole in the wall. But for some reason, when Paul shows up and he begins speaking, they come to believe that they had betrayed God, but that he had promised to make things right. That they had sought to be independent from him and so sinned against him, but he had promised to make things right. And so he took on humanity in Jesus to live the perfect life that we couldn't, to bear the weight of our sin for us, so that we could be reconciled to him. And so they put their faith in Jesus, and the church began in Galatia. Boom. It sounds a lot simpler than I'm sure it was, but it happened. But when Paul moved on, other teachers came in. Paul calls them false teachers. His, his opinion of these false teachers is not very high. In fact, at one point he says, if anyone preaches a gospel to you other than the one I have preached, let him be condemned, which is a very Christian and Bible nice way of translating, let them go to hell, which is what he meant. We just clean it up in our translations, okay? That's what he meant. And, and these teachers came in and they began to teach that Jesus is all well and good. He's great. Yeah, sure, Jesus. Everybody likes him. He's a good guy. But if you really want to please God, 
If you really want to know what will make God happy, you've got to follow all the rules in, in the Old Testament. And Paul hears of this and responds that any attempt to trust in your actions, your obedience, your rule-keeping, even biblical rule-keeping, to trust in that to make you right before God, is not just kind of slightly skewing Christianity. He says it is returning to paganism. That it is returning to paganism. Okay? All right, now we're up to speed. Let's pick it up from there in verse 13. Paul says, Become like me since I became like you. You did me no wrong. Now, what Paul is doing here is he is, he's come off of his teaching on adoption. Now he's turning their attention back to their original relationship and, and to some extent the freedom that they originally had in Jesus, calling to remember what it, what it was like. He says, look, become like me because I became like you. When I came to you, I was born a Jew, came from under the law, but, but came to you and... and became like you, so I want you to become like me. He continues, you know that it was because of a weakness of the flesh that I first preached the Gospels to you. Or, or um, I, I believe the, the, uh, the ESV says something like a, a, some kind of sickness. Anyway, so here's the thing. The scholars, scholars aren't very sure exactly what Paul's talking about there, but, but the overall impression is this, that Paul seems to not have intended to go to Galatia, or at least not to stay there, that it was part of his traveling journey. He wanted to go up through Galatia into, into, into Greece, into, into the mainland of Europe. And so, however, because of some ailment, and, and again, uh, opinions vary on exactly what that is, because of some ailment, he ended up staying in Galatia, uh, in these cities. It had to go slow. He needed to recover, which kept him in that region. And the point here is that Paul is saying, I came to you in a state of weakness. But, but he continues, even though that is the case, he says, though my condition was a trial to you, you didn't despise me or reject me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Okay, so Paul is returning to their initial relationship. I came, you didn't know me from, from a, a hole in the wall. Uh, you, I came preaching to you something that you didn't know. I came offering you nothing because I was weak, and yet you received me. You turned out towards me, he says. You, you welcomed me because of your reception of the gospel. And their treatment of them gets even better, though. Look down at the last part of verse 15. Paul says this, I testify to you that, if possible, you would have, you would have gouged out your own eyes and given them to me. Whoa. Like, here's what this is, okay? Because of this verse, some of the scholars believe that that ailment that Paul's talking about is something to do with his eyes. He was going a little blind. You'll see in some of Paul's letters, he'll write at the end, see what large letters... See what large script I write this in as he's signing his name, and the whole point is that Paul couldn't see really well, so he had to write big, uh, I don't know, maybe. It's not, that's not the point. What, what really is important here is their hearts, right? Paul is saying, you would have done anything for me. You would have literally ripped out one of your bodily organs and given it to me if you thought it would help me. That's what he's saying to them. You would have sacrificed your sight for me. Okay? So here's the point. Because of the work of the gospel, because of the work that, that the gospel had done in their lives, their belief in Jesus and what he had done, they were turned outward. They were willing to give of themselves, to sacrifice their own sight, even if that's only metaphorically. They were willing to sacrifice to that level for another. So what would life be like if you believed that Jesus had given you everything? You're willing to give away anything. Do you see that? 
If you believe that Jesus has given you everything, that you have been gifted, graced with acceptance by God, and you can't lose it because you didn't earn it, then you're moved to give over lesser things, even if those lesser things are as central to us as our sight. Paul says you would have even done that. But there's more, though. Look down at the beginning of verse 15 for this pivotal question. Right there in the middle of this, Paul asks, where is your joy? I think the ESV says blessedness, right? This is a short question and simple, but a better diagnostic couldn't have been asked. Now, let me define this word that we translate, either joy, blessedness. Some of your translations may say something different. Uh, The word in the original is the same word that Jesus used in what are called the Beatitudes. If you're not familiar with the New Testament, Jesus did this thing in his life. He went up on a mountain. He preached this sermon. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And in it, he laid out a lot of these little uh, blessed are statements that have become come to be known as the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the, uh, are the meek. Blessed are the, those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Okay? It's the same word he uses there. You can translate it happy or happiness or even blessedness or joy, but the problem is, is that because of our therapeutic culture, these are no longer adequate for us. So let me, let me explain what exactly this means. What it means, what it means to have joy, what it means to have blessedness, ultimately is about flourishing. It's about human flourishing. It is the deep soul satisfaction that comes from being restored to the God that you and I were made for. In short, it means rest. It means rest. And this is where St. Augustine's famous dictum comes in from his confessions, right? Oh God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. That is what joy is. That is what blessedness is. That is true happiness, and that is what Paul seems to think is missing from the lives of the Galatians right now. And here's why. When you know that you are fully known, fully known by God, that God knows everything you've ever done and ever will do, and and when I say that, I understand there's some of us in here who who are, you know, we may believe in God, but... He doesn't really care much about things, right? Like, we believe in God, but he doesn't ever hold us accountable. Uh, and, and, but, but see, the, the God of the Bible is the God who believes, who, who, can, who knows everything. Like, we all kind of get that, right? God, omniscient, if, he, if he's God, he's got to know everything. So God knows everything, we get that. But the Bible says he actually also cares about what we do, that our choices matter to him. And if God knows everything you've ever done and actually holds us accountable, that produces fear. At least it should. But if you know also that you are completely loved, like fully known and completely loved, known in your failures, known in your shame, known in the midst of the harm done to you by those close to you, known in the harm that you've done to others, but loved in Jesus, your failures covered, your harms made right, your soul healed. Like, think with me. If that is true of you, you have nothing left to hide And you have nothing left to strive for. Everything that is most precious to you has been taken care of. But, if you return to thinking that God needs you to serve him, needs you to keep up the rules, make up for what you've done against him, to keep striving, then what happens to that satisfaction? What happens to that rest? It disappears. It can't stand. Paul's clear implication is that faith in Christ, listen to me, faith in Christ should produce satisfaction. It should produce a joy because of what has been given. Which is exactly what the Galatians seem to be missing. 
Something else is present there. Let's look at for me by seeing a self-centered service. Look down at verse 17. Paul says, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out so that you will make much of them. All right? Now, when he says they, Paul's talking about the false teachers again. He's gone back to the, the only other they he could think of, which, which is the, the false teachers. And, and here's what he's doing. He's unmasking the hearts of these people. That's what he's doing. He, he's saying, let me tell you what's really going on. In contrast to the self-giving of the Galatians, when Paul came, Paul is telling them, here is what their religion is producing. Here's what it's producing in them. They make much of you, okay? When he says they make much of you, that word is the same that would be used of men uh, courting women for marriage in the ancient world. And so basically in our context, what we would say is, yeah, they're romancing you, but not for your good. They're trying to win you over. They're trying to get you on there, but not for, their, not for your good. They are doing it, Paul says, to shut you out so that you will make much of them. What they are trying to do is to get you to be cut off from Jesus, cut off from me, so that you will make them feel good. Here's what Paul means. Ultimately, their efforts are to make a name for themselves. That is what their efforts are about. Whereas the Galatians back in the day were willing to give of themselves for the sake of Paul, for, the, for his needs, because of their faith in Christ. These teachers are simply trying to use the Galatians for their own name. They're trying to make a name for themselves. They're they're going, look what I did. Look at the converts that I made. It becomes a basis for their self-righteousness. And that is because when, when we believe that what we do makes God like us or not, the good we do simply becomes a means to an end. And the people we do the good for are simply a means to an end. I do this for you, that's great. I get a good record out of it. Or maybe, maybe you're not even thinking about God. It's just, I'm, I get to feel good about myself. I have, I've blessed you, so now I feel like I've done well. I've done right. And this is true of us, whether we are Christians or not. Listen, if you're in your 20s or your 30s here this morning, which, let's be honest, is a good many of us, you, you're, you are probably a, a person of a cause, right? You're a person of a cause, that tends to be part of, part of this, this generation's thing. And I don't care whether your cause is political or environmental or nutritional or economic or spiritual. But when we make that cause ultimate in our lives, winning others to it gives us something. A feeling of being right. A sense we are doing our part. A, per, a, a kind of value to ourselves and to our cause, in fact. What, whatever that is. When we operate for our rightness, Instead of operating from our rightness, we will be a slave to whatever we think will make us right. Ultimately, it will always be for us. And we can fool ourselves into thinking like, but no, 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 I'm doing this for the good of people until we do it. Like, yeah, I've won someone and now I feel like, yes, there's another person on my team. Or yes, I've won someone and now I've done my part. I've done what I need to do until there's more. But Paul pulls us back to the heart in verse 18 so that we aren't tempted to think this is an issue of behavior. Look there. Paul says, It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am with you. Here's what that means. Paul is saying, The act of seeking to win you over isn't necessarily bad. Why would he say such a thing? Because he did it. That's what he did. 
The issue isn't what is being done, it's why it's being done. Okay, listen, if you get nothing else from this message this morning, as a matter of fact, if you get nothing else from ever coming to Holy Cross again, like if this is the only thing you ever get, get this. Our problem is not our behavior, it's our hearts. You see, Paul's time in Galatia was to make converts. That's why he stopped there. Like His ailment stopped, but he didn't stop working. He kept preaching. And he, the purpose for him proclaiming what he was proclaiming was to make converts. He was there to romance them into the kingdom. But this motive wasn't for him. Paul didn't need the Galatians' approval. He didn't need them to come to Jesus so that he felt like what he believed is true. He was there seeking to see them come to Jesus for two reasons, okay? At least two reasons. One, he was absolutely enraptured by the grace of Jesus, and he cherished Jesus so much that he couldn't help but commend him, okay? You will always commend the thing that you cherish the most. And so you find a new band, you find a movie that you love, and you just begin talking to people about it. Why? Because you think it's great. That's what Jesus was in Paul's life. He was so great. He was so enraptured by what Jesus had done for him, he couldn't help but tell people. That's the first reason. Second reason, because he knew that the Galatians would flourish, would be satisfied, and would find joy only in being reconciled to God through Jesus. Notice what's missing? Anything that has to do with Paul. Paul didn't need converts to make him feel good about himself or to make him believe God liked him. Paul's life was bound up in Jesus. His righteousness, his rightness before God bound up in Jesus. His satisfaction was bound up in Jesus. And in light of that, Paul could forget about himself and seek the good of the Galatians. Just like he said the Galatians forgot about themselves once they had received it and began to think, how can we help Paul? Paul would have been fine if these teachers had come and continued to preach the gospel to the Galatians. That's what he means when he says, it's good for people to make much of you and not just when I'm, not just when I'm around. What he's saying is, I wouldn't have cared if they had come and preached Jesus to you. I wouldn't care if they had said, come continue in the grace of God. Come continue growing in, the, in, the, in turning from their lesser loves and delighting fully in Jesus. Paul isn't looking for groupies. And this is the point that makes Christianity so different from every other system out there. Because it begins with our problem. And I don't, when I say system, I don't care whether we're talking a religious system like Islam or, or Buddhism or some New Age system. Or whether, whether we're talking about some philosophical system or some self-help guru that you find on Oprah. Okay, All of them say that our issue is bad behavior. But Christianity says the problem is way worse. And when I say bad behavior, I don't just mean like you're doing bad things. Sometimes it's you're thinking bad things, right? You just need to improve the way you're thinking. Positive thinking will help you. It's still something you do. Christianity says the problem's way worse than that. Jesus said it is from the heart that all this bad stuff comes. It's from the heart, not the other way around. It's not that like we do bad things and, we, it's, and, and then we change. It's that we are this way and all the stuff comes out of that. You can change your behavior. But you and I cannot change our hearts. We need someone else to do that. But when our hearts have been changed, and we have trusted in Jesus, we are freed from our self-regard and for the satisfaction that we were made for, for the self-forgetfulness that seeks the flourishing of others instead of ourselves. Now, 
like to do now is speak in a little more applied manner, if we can. Uh, First, by talking about satisfaction. Okay, If you're a Christian here this morning, this question is especially for you. If you're not, though, don't check out, because I need you to hear this too. Okay? Here's the question. Christian, where's your joy? Now, as soon as I say that, there are some of us in the room, especially because this is a Reformed church, a rather intellectual church in a rather intellectual tradition, right? And so there's some of us in this room who are thinking, what does emotion have to do with this? Like, I, I do what God asked me to do. Do you? What about when the scripture says to delight yourself in the Lord? Or when it says to rejoice in the Lord always? Right? The gospel should produce joy. It should produce a kind of satisfaction. It should produce a kind of rest. Now, does that mean that when you trust in Jesus, you're going to be walking around with a little Ned Flanders expression on your face saying hi diddly-do to everyone? No, of course not. If you don't know what that means, please Google it later. Okay? But like, I'm sad for you, honestly. But anyway, grief is part of the Christian experience. Joy and being happy are two different things. Finding rest in the midst of grief, is possible because of the work of Jesus. And here's why. The scriptures tell us that we were made for God. Okay? That we were made for a relationship with him. That our hearts were made to find contentment and rest and joy in him. And so all those desires that you have and that I have, that we, we seek to satisfy in other things, those carrots that we chase, that like if I, ju- I can rest if I just get my house under control. I can rest if I, if I can just work hard enough. I can just get enough money. If I can, if I can just have love and, and have that spouse that I want. Or I can rest when I just get a different spouse. All of those things. Things that we chase that we can't seem to catch, that that fix that you run after that never quite does it. Scriptures tell us that you aren't wanting those things. You're longing for God. You are desiring Him. But because of your brokenness, because of my brokenness, we want to look for those things in anything but Him. And every time you chase it apart from him, you are betraying him all over again. And I don't care if what you are chasing is something less culturally acceptable, like, like smoking weed and porn, or whether it's more culturally acceptable, like, like getting converts to your cause of the week. Your heart was made for him. You will only find your rest in him. Now, this doesn't mean that if you go to him, he will give you what you really want. Well, okay, so I'll get control of my life if I get Jesus. I'll get the spouse I want if I go to Jesus. I'll, 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 I'll get the financial security if I want if I go to Jesus. No, no, no. What it tells us, what it means, is that he is what you really want. And it calls us to give up on the lesser things. Secondly, let's talk about being right side out said it over and over. We've even talked about it this morning and the, the, the scripture readings that Jim read talked about it as well. We were made not for self-protection or self-exaltation, not for protecting ourselves or making ourselves look great. We were made for self-forgetfulness. We were made to live for others. This is what Jesus meant when he said the entire law, all the rules of the Old Testament can be summed up in two things. One, love the Lord your God with all that you are, with everything you have, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right? It means seeking the flourishing of others. This is the life that Jesus showed us, and this is the life we were made for. And So here's what this means for us this morning. The idea of a consumer Christian 
is an oxymoron. It's an oxymoron. The notion that a Christian, someone who has found their righteousness in Jesus, found their satisfaction in Jesus, is focused on what they are getting, how they are being served, what they get out of church or their community, or how the city can benefit them is an oxymoron. That is living according to the, according to the old way. It is, being, it is living inside out. Because we have found our fullness in Jesus, because he has filled us with himself, there is nothing else that can. Because of that, we can turn outward and seek the flourishing of others. And there are multiple ways to do this. I'm not going to get too specific. I'll, I'll paint some general categories and you can fill in the blanks for yourselves. Okay? We can do it with our time, by serving. And what I mean by serving is by laying down our agenda, being willing to do what Jesus did in John, the, the passage of John this morning where he takes up the towel and serves. We serve in a church or volunteer in our community instead of pushing our agenda on everyone. We can do it with our money by giving instead of constantly seeking to get more and more. We do it with our gifts. I mean like the, the gifts that you've been given that are internal to you. We do it with our gifts by, by praying and, and thinking about ways that we can use those gifts to benefit others instead of just building up our little kingdoms that we all like to do. And we do it with the gospel. We do it with the gospel by giving up on the notion that you and I need to be seen as cool or hip, or nice by others around us while we let them languish under the weight of their sin and stay silent about how ours was taken by Jesus, not because of anything we've done, but because of him. We help people encounter, know, and show Jesus by serving them, by, by seeking their flourishing through the gospel. Let me conclude with two ideas, okay? Two things for us this morning. If you've been given everything by Jesus, then the world can give you nothing and you can give anything. Let me say that again. If you've been given everything in Jesus, if, if everything, if the, the deepest longings of your heart have been satisfied in Jesus, then there's nothing that the world can give you. It can give you nothing and you are willing to give anything away. And two, if you did nothing to earn the joy that you were made for, then you can do nothing to lose it. But you can glory in it. You can delight in it by inviting others to share in it with you. Would you pray with me? Lord, over this time, we have, we have sought your face and asked for your, your blessing and your presence in it. And now, Lord, I just want to trust that you're doing that. You are faithful. Lord, some of us in this room are, are followers of Jesus, uh, but we have no joy. And Lord, I pray that what you would help us to do is to lay aside those things that are hindering that. Those beliefs that we have to perform, that we have to do something, we have to maintain something. Instead, let us trust in Jesus and find our satisfaction in you. You are what we long for. For others of us, Lord, we've never trusted in Jesus at all. And all of this sounds either too good to be true or just bizarre. Holy Spirit, you are the one that gives life. You are you're the one who makes the soil good for the seed to be planted in. And so we ask that you would do that even now. 
And Lord, for the rest of us who uh, perhaps experience that joy and that satisfaction, but feel weird about proclaiming it, feel weird about sharing it with both those who believe and those who don't, I pray that you would overcome uh, those things in us and move us out so that we might seek the flourishing of others. Lord, create Holy Cross into a church that is turned right side out, seeking the good of others instead of constantly being obsessed with our own We need you to do this, Lord. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.